0: We're turning here to Mark uh, chapter one. We'll read the first thirteen verses of that gospel. Um, but we'll be looking especially at verses nine through thirteen. So we'll read together Mark chapter one, verses one to thirteen, and then spend our time looking at verses nine to thirteen this morning. Hear now the word of the living God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, and with a leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. The grass withers, the flower fades. God's word endures forever. Amen. Why don't we pray together? Our God in heaven, as we now come to your word, we pray that you deal with us according to your great mercy and that You would enable us to see our Lord Jesus Christ in all of His glory. Lord, that if there are unbelieving here, that by this sermon preached by an unworthy servant, but enabled by Your Holy Spirit, that we would have light and life come to bear for the glory of Jesus Christ. We pray that as we set our minds upon the Lord Jesus, as we fix our eyes upon Him, that You encourage us, Strengthen us and enable us to live this life that You've called us to live as we long for the day of His return and the full realization of our salvation. Lord, would You please now bless the preaching of Your Word for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Even as I mentioned in the prayer, one of those very basic principles of the Christian life, what does it mean to live the Christian life? You will find... That phrase, as uh, very memorably written in Hebrews chapter 12, we are to uh, fix our eyes upon Jesus. We're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Uh, They're not there to cheer you along, uh, as some preachers perhaps have said, but they're there to bear witness to the fact that uh, they have been recipients of the same grace. They are witnesses to the same mercy. And as they have gone before us, we don't fix our eyes upon them. We fix our eyes upon the Lord Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And if that is so central to the Christian life, and I tell you it is, then it is absolutely vital for each one of us to know the Jesus upon whom we are called to fix our eyes. We need to know something of Him. In fact, we need to know as much as we can of Him, who He is, and what He has come to do. Now, children... I see there are a lot of you here, and that's good. It's always an encouragement to see that. I often will ask people, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? And I get varied responses, but I really want to encourage you to remember this this morning, that when you're asked the question, what is the gospel, there's a very, very simple answer to that question, which forms the beginning of how you can open it up into the unsearchable expanse of riches that it is. What is the gospel? the gospel is Jesus. The gospel is the person and work of Jesus. Who is Jesus? What did he come to do? And in fact, the gospel of Mark, I believe, is structured to answer that exact question. You have the beginning of this gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the very first half of John, or Mark's gospel is really directed toward answering the question, and you'll see it asked by many people. Who is this man? Who is he? It's interesting that in the first half, the only ones who really know the answer to that question are the demons. We know who you are, they say, but you see men saying, who is he? Well, once we get to that great climactic point in Mark chapter 8, where Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? You remember Peter's great confession. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And from that point on, what Mark is really teaching us through the words of Jesus is what did Jesus come to do? That's what the gospel is. Who is Jesus? What did he come to do? I really want to focus upon those great realities this morning to set before you the reality that Jesus Christ is the all-sufficient Savior. And if I notice your little note sheet in your bulletin, if you're looking for the main point, that's it. Jesus Christ is the all-sufficient Savior. But what I want to do is not, not put Jesus before you as one of many options that you could decide between. Because Jesus is not a matter of last resort. He's not someone to turn to, well, I've tried this, didn't work, tried this, didn't work. Let me see if Jesus will work. That's not what we're doing here. But I want to set the Lord Jesus before you. Cotton Mather, who was a Puritan writer uh, long ago, has one of the greatest quotes I've ever read about preaching. I love it, and I want to read it to you. Where he says that the great design and intention of the office of a Christian preacher are to restore the throne and dominion of God in the souls of men and to display in the most lively colors and proclaim in the clearest language the wonderful perfections, offices, and grace of the Son of God. So we want to restore the throne and dominion of God in your heart, set Jesus before you in his perfections. To what end? He says, and to attract the souls of men into an estate of everlasting friendship with him. I want to encourage you this morning into an estate, into a renewed estate, into the beginning of a state of everlasting friendship with the Lord Jesus by setting before you just how glorious, in my own um, simple way, just how glorious Jesus is. Jesus is the all sufficient Savior. I want to show you three ways from verses 9 through 13 that Jesus Christ is the all-sufficient Savior of His people. You'll see in verse 9 where Mark says, it came to pass after this very brief introduction to the gospel, it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. What is going on here? Well, the first reason, the first thing that this text teaches us about the all-sufficiency of Jesus is... He is the all-sufficient Savior because he identified with sinners. He identified with sinners. Now, the language of identification is, is a bit of a misused one today. I identify as that or as this or as that or I identify with these people. What does it mean really to identify yourself with something or someone? In the case of the Lord Jesus, when he identifies himself with sinners, he doesn't make himself a sinner. But he is showing that he is willing to be connected with these people who are sinful, who are deserving of the everlasting and just wrath of Almighty God. How does Jesus do that, and how does this text teach us here? Let me show you two ways that Jesus identifies himself with sinners. First of all, he does so by taking to himself our nature, not our sin nature, not a sin nature, but our human nature, Now, note this in verse 9. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. You see, Jesus' very name, the reason he's given that name, is you may remember from the Gospel of Matthew, that the reason he is called Jesus is because he will save his people. His people, the people that he represents, the people whose nature he bears, the people for whom he came to die. Jesus had to be made like us, the Bible tells us, in every way, yet without sin, because sin is not inherent to what it means to be human. Sadly, it's uh, the universal application of those ordinarily born in this world, the Lord Jesus only accepted, but Jesus came to save His people. He took to Himself our nature, and He did so in a condition of tremendous humiliation, One of the things our catechism teaches us about the humiliation of Jesus is he was born in a low condition. He was born in poverty, it's true, but he also lived in obscurity. I told you earlier that uh, I'm from Royston, Georgia, and Royston, Georgia has pretty much one claim to fame. Uh, If any of you know anything about baseball, uh, you should know the name Ty Cobb. And Royston's only claim to fame, and if you don't know Ty Cobb, this will completely fall flat upon your ears, but just bear with me. Ty Cobb is one of the greatest baseball players ever to live. He's sadly been a victim of cancel culture lately, but he was a a good man in his own way. But Ty Cobb came from Royston. That's our claim to fame. The way I've explained to people what Nazareth is like, it's like Royston without Ty Cobb. They have nothing. But that's where Jesus lived and worked for decades. That's where he grew up. Nobody knew him. This is the incarnate, glorious, eternal Son of God living outside of the sight of men. No recognition, no praise, no glory. Nobody even knows what he did. We have one snippet in the Gospel of Luke of his life between his birth and his public ministry. Jesus came and he took to himself our nature in a position of tremendous humiliation. But it doesn't stop there. Because Jesus identified with sinners not merely in taking to himself our own humanity, but he identifies with sinners most remarkably here in this passage through baptism. Through baptism. Look at this text. He came and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now let us back up for a moment because you need to see how significant this is. John comes preaching. And if you've ever wondered, why in the world is John here described as wearing camel's hair and a leather belt? Why this wardrobe description in the gospel? Well, Mark and the other gospel writers are very intentionally connecting John with Elijah. And if you go back and read, I think it's in 1 Kings 18, this is the exact way Elijah is described. And so John comes, just as Elijah came kind of out of nowhere, John comes out of nowhere and he's preaching. But just as Elijah's preaching to a pretty much decimated kingdom, a wayward people calling them to repentance... This is what John is doing. He's preaching. But note back in chapter 1, verse 5. He's preaching in the land of Judea to all those who are in Jerusalem. They're going out to him to be baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. He's preaching a baptism of repentance to the only segment of humanity who's in covenant with God. He's coming to these covenant people and he's saying, Your circumcision essentially means nothing. You need to repent. And as He's drawing their minds to their sin, as He's drawing their hearts to the great need of repentance, this is preparing the way of the Lord who's coming to save people from their sins. Because we all know that unless you have a sense of your sin, you will not find the need for a Savior. So with that in mind, and you can imagine John, now I remember, I, I've been told here I'm preaching in a former Baptist church, so I need to make this little comment here. It says here that John uh, was baptizing, okay, and you, and you need to think of, most of the time you think of John dunking people in the river. I doubt that was what was happening. He's almost certainly picking up water, putting it on people, okay. Many people are coming out. He's not doing this all day uh, with the bicep curls. He's simply pouring water ceremonially upon people, And you need to imagine the sinners coming down into the Jordan, water being poured upon them, and figuratively, their sins are being washed into the water of the Jordan River. And it's into that water that Jesus walks. Now children, here's the question. What kind of baptism was John applying? It was a baptism of repentance. So the next question we need to ask is, why is Jesus... Being baptized with the baptism of repentance. Did Jesus have any sin from which he needed to repent? The answer is no. But what's happening is Jesus is walking down into the, let's say, the the murky waters of the water of Jordan. And that sinful polluted water John picks up and places upon Jesus. And what Jesus is doing there is he's identifying himself with Sinners. That water being placed upon Him. Through identification, Jesus identifies Himself with sinners. But there's also something else going on in the life of Jesus because this baptism is not only a baptism of identification. It's a baptism of consecration. Jesus is here, as we learn from the other Gospels, about 30 years old. And there's significance to that because It wasn't until the Levites who were to serve within the temple, until they were 30 years old, they weren't allowed to begin public ministry. And here Jesus is coming down and he's receiving this, essentially, washing of consecration. Not to wash him of sins, but to prepare him for his public work. We're going to see this later in a moment as well. If you read in Exodus 29 and Leviticus 8... There, the instructions are given to us for what the priests had to do before they were allowed to work. And one of the things they had to do was they had to receive a washing to prepare them for that work in God's presence. But you see, Jesus is here as He's consecrated for that public work. Technically speaking, this isn't really a baptism of consecration, but actually, spiritually, almost a baptism of of desecration, where sins are put upon him. It's a picture of what would happen, as we'll think about this afternoon on the cross, where sins would be placed upon him, the wrath of God placed upon him. And here Jesus is beginning that life of living as the one who would represent sinners. This is a baptism of identification of consecration. And finally here, it's actually a baptism of preparation You may remember when James and John would later come up to the Lord and say, Lord, we want you to do whatever we ask. And he very wisely says, well, what do you want me to do? And you remember what they said. We want to sit on your right and left hands in glory. And he asked them a question. You remember what the question was? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I will be baptized? Are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink This baptism is a little foreshadowing of what Jesus would endure. His willing entrance into the filthy waters tainted by the sins of sinners. It's a picture of when He would one day in three years or so time willingly endure the wrath of God. Now, let me pause here before we move on to the second point that you might make some connections here. As we think about the Lord Jesus identifying with sinners, there are so many ways we could apply this. One of the ways we could think about this is, listen, as we sing in that wonderful song, Oh, uh, for a thousand tongues to sing, this is the Savior whose blood can make the foulest clean. And if you've ever had doubts that he, his blood would avail for you, you think, oh, my sins are too bad. Jesus enters into this realm of humanity in order to deliver sinners like you and like me. The worst of sinners. Some people struggle and they have their faith challenged and they say, well, why would God allow this to happen? Why would God allow that to happen? Why does, why doesn't God do something? I want to encourage you, my dear brothers and sisters, friends, if you ever get to the point where you're asking, why doesn't God do something? You need to remember, God has done something. This is the proof that God has already done something. God does not stand aloof in heaven. Somehow separated from the plight of humanity, God came down in the person of his son, identifying with sinners. He didn't live in an ivory palace all of his life. He walked the dusty earth and received this baptism to identify with people like us. Jesus is the all sufficient Savior because he identifies with sinners. I want to show you, secondly, that Jesus is the all-sufficient Savior because He is the one and the only one who is approved by God. How does this text teach us that Jesus is the only one approved by God? Look at verse 10. Immediately, one of the words that John or Mark often uses in his gospel, immediately, coming up from the water... Remember, water flows down. This is Jesus coming up from that lower geographical point. He's walking up from this instance where he's had water placed upon him in this baptism. Immediately as he's walking up from this scene, he looks up and he sees the heavens parting. You could. This is actually the word here for, for schism. You see the heavens ripped open by God. This immediate work of the divine Father ripping, however it looked, heaven open, And he saw the heavens parting and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And the voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And I want to show you three signs that this is the one approved by God. First is that rending of the heavens. It's interesting, this is exactly the answer to the prayer that we read in Isaiah 64. Do you remember that? Where the prophet, sensible of his need, sensible of his guilt, Sensible of all the difficulties, he says, Lord, would you, would you do something that no human can do? Would you do something that the arm of flesh cannot do? Would you just rend the heavens and come down? And here, the heavens are rent. for The sun has come down, and this is a sign both to the eyes and to the ears of those who are present that something miraculous, something glorious was happening. God has this cosmic sign to show this, this is my son. Well, it's clear that he's approved by God from the rending of the heavens. It's clear, secondly, from the anointing of the Holy Spirit. I told you earlier that baptism, this washing with water, was part of the consecrating process, the ordination process, if you will, of the priests before they entered into public service. But it actually didn't go by itself. Because priests, people to live in the presence of God and serve in his presence, don't only need their sins washed away, they need the fullness of the Spirit. They need to be anointed that they might serve in God's presence. There's the removal, but also the bestowal. And here what we see in the Lord Jesus is not merely is he baptized in this manner, but he is anointed by the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove. That anointing oil had to be placed upon those particular uh, priests in order to serve in God's presence. Without it, they were not to draw near to God. We also see here it's the Holy Spirit Himself descending upon Jesus, anointing Him, filling Him, enabling Him for all the work that He would eventually do. Now many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with this sign of a dove. But have you ever thought, why? Why does a dove come down? Why does the, the sign of a dove come down and rest upon the Lord Jesus? Why this picture? Well, children, where in the Bible would you say is the most famous dove in all of the Scriptures? I would bet most of you would think about a particular scene early on in the book of Genesis where Noah sent out a dove over a world that had just been destroyed. And when that dove brought back signs of life, there were signs to Noah that it was about time for this new creation to begin. And here, this sign of new creation is descending upon the Lord Jesus. And Ron Ryder says here that this is a reminder of the way in which God's judgment came to an end when the dove which Noah sent from the ark found a place to rest. It symbolizes the beginning of God's new creation. It was as though God were saying, Jesus is the one in whom I will begin again. Here's a picture of what Jesus came to do. The Son approved by God, who would be the one through whom not the perishable new creation from Noah would come, but the actual new creation, the new humanity, new life, Eventually, Eden restored and exceeded. This is all going to happen through the Lord Jesus Christ. It is clear. Here is the approved Son because of the rending of the heavens, because of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And it is clear, finally, from the declaration of the Father. The Father loves the Son with an everlasting, undiminishing, and unincreasable love, not because there's a limit, but because It is infinite. And here it is, as it were, the Father's love spills over from heaven, pours down into the created world, and he displays to all, this is my beloved son. It's reminiscent of the way Isaac was described to Abraham, your son, your only son, the one that you love. This is the one, the sacrificial one. This is the way Isaiah would describe the suffering servant, behold my son in whom I delight. Here you must understand Jesus is not becoming the son at his baptism because he is the son. It is the clear and public declaration. One of the things I've found in my own life and I've found pastoring is that people struggle. People struggle thinking, well, I can approach Jesus and I'm sure that if I approach Jesus, I'll find mercy. But there can sometimes be, as Sinclair Ferguson very ably points out in his book, The Whole Christ, there can sometimes be a suspicion that maybe God is not so willing. Maybe the, fa- the son, yes, but maybe not the father. Let me show you something to dispel that false notion about the God that we all need to approach through the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll do it in this way. When did the father declare his love to the son? Friends, it was not before he identified with sinners, but after. It was after. It was after he received that baptism. It's as he walks up, being willing to represent these people, being the one who would be the sin bearer, and this is the display of God's love. This is why I love my son so much. Look at what he's willing to do. He's setting him on display, not as the cause of his love, but as the display of his love to a world Holy undeserving of it. This is what God is like. Jesus is here beginning his work as the one sent of the Father and as the great high priest over his people. Friends, Jesus is the all sufficient Savior. He identified with sinners. He is most clearly approved by God. But I want to show you finally that he is the all sufficient Savior because he was victorious. In temptation. He was victorious in temptation. The text says that immediately, after this display and declaration of God's love, immediately, the same spirit that anointed Jesus casts him out into the wilderness, drives him out with an intensity, almost a violence, so that he would be tempted says, he was there in the wilderness 40 days tempted by Satan and was with the wild beasts and the angels ministered to him. This is a divine appointment. This is something that was not incidental to Jesus' life. This is something central to the beginning of his ministry. I want to show you three purposes from this text and drawn out from it about the temptation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why was this so vital? As you think about the Lord Jesus, and as I call you today to put your trust in the Lord Jesus, why was it necessary for you to be saved, for Jesus to be tempted in the wilderness and come out victorious? Why? Well, first of all, I want you to see there's a national purpose. Jesus is the one who rights every wrong. Jesus is the one who does well what those who went before him should have done well, but failed. First of all, Israel. Now, do you remember the number 40 has a great significance to the life of Israel, doesn't it? What association is that? Well, we remember that Israel wandered around in the wilderness after their great deliverance from Egypt for how long? It was for 40 years. Why? It was because the spies were in the land for 40 days, planning it out, spying it out, and they came back unbelieving and brought back a bad report except for Joshua and Caleb. And for that reason, they were consigned to 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And what does the Bible teach us? With the vast majority of them, God was not well pleased. They died in the wilderness because of their unbelief. They failed as God's chosen people. But here what we see is Jesus essentially... Retracing those steps of that nation of whom he was the true citizen. Jesus, the true son of Abraham, the true child and king out of Judah in the line of David. Jesus is re-stepping all of these things and he does not fail. He succeeds. He has no provision of manna from heaven. He has nothing. And he succeeds. There's a national purpose. There's also more fundamentally a covenantal purpose where we go all the way back to the beginning because part of our own lives directly is we have someone organically, federally, really related to us who was tempted and failed, and we all know his name, don't we? His name was Adam. Children, I wonder if you've ever—I uh, don't know if children read the newspaper anymore. I did when I was a kid, and in the funny papers, which is what I would usually read, they would usually have a little section. I forget what they were called, but there would be two pictures, and they were very similar, but there would be maybe 15 or 20 differences between the two. It was a contrast. And what you're supposed to do is look and find what ways are these different? I want to put Jesus and Adam before you, and I want to show you what ways are Adam and Jesus different. Now, we know they're similar. They represent all those uh, to whom, uh, who are given to them, but in what ways are they different? Well, let's think about Adam. If we think of the picture of Adam, Where was Adam when he was tempted? He was in paradise. He was given all the trees of the garden to eat except for one, forbidden him. Who was with Adam? He had his beautiful wife, Eve, not named Eve quite yet, so the woman with him, enjoying that great communion. He's in paradise. He has provisions. He has his blessed life partner, Uh, There are no threats to his safety. You will remember that all of the animals were under his perfect dominion at the time. This is our first father. This was the situation in which Adam was tempted. Now let's contrast, let's compare. How about Jesus? Where was Jesus when he was tempted? No Garden of Eden. He was in the wilderness. Who was with Jesus when he was tempted? He had no companionship. He was alone. 40 days, directly assaulted by Satan, not with ample provision, but he fasted for 40 days, 40 days, and I think it is in Luke where it says, and after these days, he was hungry. It's interesting, some commentators write about why does Mark say, and the wild beasts were there, was with him. A lot of answers given, I just think it's It's comparison. He's threatened. There are wild beasts all around him. You can even think about Psalm 91. He's having to live by faith in his father to provide for him. And so here we have the great contrast, the, the first Adam, the second Adam, first Adam in perfection with everything he could possibly need, the second Adam in the wilderness with nothing. Our first father fails. The second Adam succeeds. And the angels are there ministering to him. There's a covenantal reason here. He's saying the second Adam, the Lord is teaching us, the one I've sent is so far superior to the one I made at the beginning. His work is better. His glory is better. Everything he does will be better. There's a third purpose to this section here of his victory and temptation, not merely national, not merely covenantal, but that is what I've called exemplary exemplary. And what that means is it's like the father is in a holy way showing off his son, bragging to the world, this is who my son is. You can imagine an engineer has constructed a bridge. He's constructed a bridge, he spent his life planning this and it's it's the strongest, most capable bridge that you can imagine and every bridge and you should be thankful for this every time you go across a bridge every bridge is subjected to stress tests to make sure it can bear the load that will be placed upon it now with that bridge being constructed and an immense amount of weight put upon that bridge the bridge created by that expert engineer will it fail no it will succeed it will succeed and it shows just how capable just how perfect this bridge is the weight is real but the bridge succeeds. Now, some people argue, some people argue that, that Jesus could have sinned here because if he, if he couldn't have sinned, if he was what is called impeccable, then and it wasn't really a temptation. But here's the reality, my friends. The weight placed upon Jesus was real. There was nothing in him. There was no lust in him to which Satan could appeal. There was no weakness in him, sinfully speaking, that Satan could exploit. And yet, just like a perfect bridge, the weight is real as it's placed upon Jesus, but Jesus endures perfectly because of his glorious person and his glorious strength. William Hendrickson says this, In Christ, there was no sinful desire to which Satan could appeal. Nevertheless, the temptation, that is, the sense of need, the consciousness of being urged by Satan to satisfy this need, the knowledge of having to resist the tempter and the struggle to which this gave rise, these were real, even for Christ. And as you look to Jesus bearing the weight, personally, of the tempter, doing so in the most imaginably weak position that we could ever physically find ourselves in, this should more than convince you Of the sufficiency of this Savior to deal with your sins, your weaknesses. And friends, it is true, it is true, and I'll apply it in this way. It's not all that this text is talking to us about in temptation, but it is true. That means when you're tempted, you must recognize you have no strength in yourself. You don't. How many times have you failed? How many times have you looked at those things forbidden? How many times have you spoken in ways forbidden? How many times have you failed in the midst of temptation? That should drive you low to the ground in humiliation. And then let that humiliation drive you straight to the cross of the one who was victorious when he was tempted in a way far, far, far greater than you were. And yet came out flawlessly. Friends, Jesus Christ is the all-sufficient Savior. He identified with sinners. He was approved by God. He's victorious in temptation. A couple things I want you to think about as we close this morning. First of all, maybe I'll put it this way. Politics have been strange always as long as sinners have been involved in it. But I know in America, sometimes we think with the Federal representation, we can think, well, does my senator, does my district's representative, does he really have my interests in mind when he goes there to that place called Washington, D.C.? Does he really care? And that's actually a legitimate question. But when you think of Jesus Christ, our heavenly representative, the one who is out of our sight, but certainly we are not out of his mind, does he care? Is he able to represent you well? Is he able to have sympathies with you and your weakness? Is he willing to draw near to you when you have failed again and again and again and again and draw you back with the cords of love and wash you of your sins, maybe for the thousandth time? This is what this Savior is like, friends. He's all-sufficient in his person. He is all-sufficient in his work. And he's all-sufficient in his willingness as he is the sympathetic high priest who represents his people that he identified with. This is what this Savior is like. He is able to deal with us in our most desperate condition without Himself succumbing to it. It's one who is willing to be a friend. He is the one willing to draw near and to wash us of our guilt. Friends, I also want you to understand that this is the Jesus. This is the same Christ, then humiliated, who now is glorified. It's this Jesus whose character has not changed. This is the one who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. This is the one who presently right now rules in his church and over his church and directs all things that may cause many tears to drop down the faces of the people of his church. He directs them for good and he will shepherd his people to those streams of living water. This is what the Savior is like. Our Savior's work is sufficient able to deal with the guilt of your sin and able to deal with the power of your sin. He breaks the back of reigning sin. He sets the prisoner free. So friends, as I call you today, you must set your eyes upon Jesus. What does that mean? That means recall the things that you have been preached about today, the things set before you in the preaching of the word, not by visual aid, although we'll have it in just a moment, But recall these things and remember, this is the Christ who's offered to you. This is the Christ who died to save sinners, and I urge you to believe in his blood shed for you after a perfectly righteous life lived. Believe in these things, and he will save you to the uttermost. Why? Because he is the all-sufficient Savior. Amen. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we thank you for Jesus Christ. And we pray you'd forgive us for our small thoughts of him. Lord, we know so little of him. And oftentimes, as we think about our sins and failures, Lord, we forget. And we pray that as we have thought about our Savior and had him presented to us in the preaching of the word here this morning, that we would find our hearts knit to him in faith, that we would find solace for all of our sorrows in him. Thank you that he is the one Who's willing to draw near to us, and we pray now as we turn uh, as we sing in a moment and then turn to this blessed sacrament, as we'll have him set before us, in the signs that he's appointed, that you would confirm to us and strengthen us in our faith in Him. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.